Well, good morning again. Take a seat, get comfortable. We're continuing our series, actually wrapping up our series this morning on the fruit of the Spirit, internal gospel growth. I'm going to go ahead and, and read our scripture passage this morning, which is from Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 16 through 24. Uh, and then once, once we, uh, re- after we've done reading that, then we'll dismiss the children to, uh, to their uh, children's church. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May the Lord bless the reading, the preaching, the hearing, and the responding to his word this morning. Amen. So children, you're dismissed to Children's Church. It's a great opportunity for the kids also to, to hear about Jesus and hear the hear about the gospel. We thank thankful for the teachers to teach our children. So we're gonna, like I said, we're going to be continuing our series. We're going to be summing up our series on the fruit of the Spirit, internal gospel growth. We've been talking about how the fruit of the Spirit is, empower, is, is part of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who indwells all of those who believe and who belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit when he was here. Before he was betrayed, before after he was betrayed, before he was crucified, on the night that he was with his disciples for the last time, in his uh, uh, before he was glorified, before his glorified body, he said to them at the last supper, "Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is to your advantage that I go, for I do not go. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority." But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. And we know that Jesus was faithful to that promise of sending the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when we see the Holy Spirit was unleashed on the church, into the world, and into the church, into the people of God. And now that all those who are saved, who come to a saving knowledge of Christ, who, who surrender to Christ's lordship, trust in his work on the cross... The Spirit comes and seals us in our our eternal destinies, but also He comes and dwells within us, applies the redemptive uh, redemptive work of Jesus Christ to our hearts and sets us free from enslavement to sin. And because of that, we now have new new identities. We were once enemies of God, but now we are His adopted sons and daughters. And over the course of this life, every fiber of our being is being transformed, supernaturally transformed by the work of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit produced in us. In our hearts, in our, in our souls, in our minds, every aspect of our being, there's spiritual growth is taking place. Right? By the Spirit who indwells in us, who takes up residence in us now, He's progressively changing us and making us into the people that we were created to be from the beginning. We were destined to be. We were supposed to be. We were created to be. It's a slow process, right? It's, it's a, it takes a long time. It takes, it's a lifelong endeavor. Right? It doesn't happen overnight. But it's one that we know has a definite and it has a glorious end. Paul tells us that much in Philippians chapter 1 when he talks about the glorification process and how it's it will be culminated when Christ returns when he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. 
So there's coming a day, we're told, and we hope for, and we, we, we look forward to, anticipate, when the process of becoming made holy, becoming more like Christ, will be complete. Jesus will finally be here. He will bring, us, he will bring his bride, his church, together to himself, and we will be made perfect. We finally will be free, completely free, from the desires of the sinful flesh that now wage war against the godly desires, spiritual desires that we have now here under our new identities. And Paul does this as a a way of encouraging, he tells this to the Philippian church as a way of encouraging them, celebrating their their participation as, as partners with him in the gospel, in the going forth of the gospel into the world. But if you remember from the beginning of our series, we saw that no such celebration is at the beginning of the book of Galatians. Instead, Paul is troubled by the theology that he's hearing as coming out of the church in Galatia. He's astonished that they're so quickly abandoning the gospel, the real true gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, they're, they're flocking to a false gospel. They're, they're flocking to heresy. And instead of hearing good news of ripening fruit that should be being produced in this, in this church, he's instead hearing that there's vast spiritual dehydration across the church and that they've abandoned the gospel that brings life, that brings renewal, and instead they're, they're accepting and falling for the lie of the, the life-depleting adherence to the Mosaic law. Judaizers have come in, as you remember, and they are the ones who are taking over the church. They're bad-mouthing Paul, they're trash-talking Paul, but they're also doing something even, even worse in that they're supplanting the grace of God because they're teaching that Christians should keep keep themselves um, free from sin through, through the law, by adherence to the law. So they're effectively creating this new formula, which is Jesus plus works. Jesus plus adhering to the law is what is going to give you salvation. They're spreading the, the lie that Jesus' Tony work on the cross, his perfect life, his resurrection, all that that he did for us in the gospel is, is not enough to cleanse us from our sin and bring us into right standing before God. Enough, it's not enough to justify us to, to be declared righteous before God. In other words, they're, they're saying that if you adhere to these dietary restrictions, if you are circumcised, if you abide by all these other rules and regulations, then you're going to have God's love. You're going to experience His favor, His love, and you're going to experience eternal life. So before I go further, I just want to ask the question of all of us this morning, are, has that crept into into your way of thinking? Has that crept into your theology? Has that crept into your intentions and motivations? This formula of Jesus plus works or Jesus plus anything else. Are you relying on something other than the grace of God in order to um, boost your relationship with God to some degree, to make it, to make it some way better or to earn it? If you, if, if you are in that, in that situation now, and all of us come to that situation at some point in our lives, we all struggle with that, with that from time to time, then we need to hear this morning what Paul has to say about that. What he says to the Galatians is just as true for us today as it was for them two, over 2,000 years ago. He says at the beginning of chapter 5 of Galatians that we're in, For freedom, Christ has set us free. So therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And what he's saying is, effectively, why would you want to turn back to your chains? Why would you want to go back to enslavement to sin and go under the burden of the law? Instead, turn to Christ. Throw yourself on the mercies of God and on His grace. True freedom is not found in following the law. True freedom from sin is in Christ alone. It's through faith in Christ alone. The tagline through our our series, if you remember, you've probably heard it for the last nine weeks, ten weeks, is that there's a major difference between a morally restrained heart that is dependent upon, upon the law and a supernaturally transformed heart that's resting in the gospel. Let me take, that, let me take a minute and just break that apart a second and go through that. First, there's, there's a way in which our human, natural human tendency, our psyche, is to run away from God, to sprint away from God to find true freedom. And we do that usually in a, in a number of ways, two main ways, which is just utter 
disregard for God, a hate for God and for His law, and sheer, sheer rebellion. And the other one is just as bad, just as dangerous, and that is through man-made religion. So we use some, some form of strict adherence to a set of laws, to some set of standards, in order to justify our existence, in order to somehow garner favor with God, maybe to build a reputation uh, among people so they look at us a certain way, we look good in front of other people, or maybe to define our own purpose in life, to, to hear or align ourselves with the identity that we want to present to the world. But either way, either, whether method you use, whether it's through man-made religion or it's through its sheer rebellion toward God, it's going to result in the same thing, which is you're going to end up with emptiness, you're going to end up with hurt and pain in this life, but also eternally as well. But, going back to our tagline, is a heart that is instead resting in the finished work of, of Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, his perfectly lived life, his resurrection from the grave, that's going to produce something much different than the world can produce. It's going to produce a fruitful life. It's going to produce a purposeful, abundant life that's experienced now and more fully in the life to, to come when Jesus returns for us. It's a life that's, that, is not, um, that is a result, not a result of good works, I should say, but is rather, um, it's a way in which we joyfully express the experience that we've already, that's already been established, that we're already experiencing through security in God's love, in God's favor, in God's mercy and grace toward us. It's a light that's not ruled by sinful passions, but instead it's, it's marked by these nine attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, including this, that, would, that we're going to be talking about this morning, which is self-control. So let's, let's ter- take a look at self-control this morning. We're going to look under, we're going to study self-control this morning under three headings. We're going to look at how it, how it fits within the paradigm of the fruit of the Spirit and define it. First, we're going to take a moment and we're going to define what the fruit of the Spirit is, of self-control is. Then we're going to look at sin as, as the enemy for, uh, for self-control. And then we're, finally, we're going to look at Scripture, and Scripture being that pathway toward um, self-control. So first, let's take a moment and let's, find, let's define what self-control is. I think it's by no accident that Paul makes sure to list self-control as part of the fruit of the Spirit. One, because the Holy Spirit's telling him to do, is, is in, you know, helping to do that. But also, I think he sees that self-control is sorely lacking in the Galatian church. <clears throat> He's saying that um, he also butts it up against the end of verse 23, which says, against such things there's no law. And that seems kind of ironic that he's doing that. And you might look at the Galatian church and, and we might think and say that, well, they, they have a law in place. They're using self-imposed laws. And that, isn't that a good thing? Isn't, isn't, aren't laws good in, which they, in, in, in the fact that they can control and help curb behavior? And I'd say, yes, that's true. We all are happy about the fact that we have civil law in place against such things like murder, right? And it being a capital offense and there being a strict and harsh punishment against that. We all say that's a good thing. We need that. It, it, it helps um, keep things in order, people, people controlled. It works for the majority of the population. It's, it's God's common grace on us. We'd say, we'd say it also that, that personal regulations um, in the form of personal ethics is also a good thing, right? That, that also can curb our behaviors a little bit. If we look at it in that way, then, and we're going to define self-control in that way, then it's, going to, then it's going to sound something like this, that self-control is mastery over one's desires and passions. And it's usually in the form, again, of some kind of law, whether it's an external law or one that we're self-imposing on ourselves. And that's how people typically understand this term of self-control. And left at that, many people, we would know, in, in our culture, people who don't know Christ as well, could be considered self-controlled. They consider, could be considered self-disciplined. Right? There's lots of people, many people, are good law-abiding citizens. They, they conform to what society and culture t- teaches us and tells us are, is, a, is a good standard of ethics. Um, but at, ironically, as, as, as Pastor Tim Keller points out, that, that this is the very reason why people don't come to Jesus in, in the first place. They don't see a need for Jesus because if, he's, if Jesus is offering self-control, well, I've got that already, I don't need him after all. What? What, what good is, is Jesus for the law-abiding law citizen who's not a believer? 
But we're going to find this morning that true self-control is not somehow abiding by some kind of cultural acceptable standard by suppressing our emotions or restricting ourselves in a way that is considered right and wrong, good or bad by the, by the culture definition. Instead, self-control is fulfilling the expectations of God. It's abiding by, by God's set of standards, which is an utter impossibility if we're all honest to if we, when we look at the law, we look at the scriptures, what it teaches us, it's, it's impossible for us to, to live according to those laws. And that's why Jesus had to do it for us. That's precisely the reason why we need Jesus' imputed righteousness upon us. Him putting the law into our hearts, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit by the, by the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us. Otherwise, no matter how, how self-controlled we appear on the outside, how self-disciplined we appear, internally we're still a chaotic mess of idolatry, of self-destructive sinful desires. So if that's the case, that's not, if that's not the, the real definition of self-control, then what is self-control? Well, biblical self-control is something entirely different. St- true self-control is the supernatural ability to deny our sinful indulgences and do what's pleasing to God under the guidance and under the control of the Holy Spirit. So let me say that again. Biblical self-control is that supernatural ability to deny our sinful indulgences, especially those of the, of the sensual variety, those that appeal to our senses, and to do what's pleasing to God under the guidance and under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the question, then, the question that, that then follows that is, how do we live a life that's pleasing to God? And Jesus answers that for us. By saying, summing up the law in two commandments, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all of your being and to love other people, serve other people. Older traditions of, of, of Scripture, you know, of the, of the Bible, you might look at the King James Version and other ones that, that, that use the word temperance or temperate rather than self-control. And I don't like that one so much, be, just, I mean, mainly because people don't use that word anymore. We don't use temperate or temperance. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you don't hear people say, oh, I noticed that your kids were uh, quite uh, self-controlled. They were quite temperate today. Or, you know, I'm, I'm being quite temperate by staying within the confines of my caloric intake prescribed by my family physician. We don't, use, we don't talk like that, right? We don't use the word temperate anymore. But I think no matter how you, whatever word you use, whether it's temperate or self-control, people are going to come at it seeing only one word or see, understanding one concept, and that is control. And that is restriction and oppression, right? And if we're honest, we don't like restriction. Now, why would I, if I was looking at it from that perspective, why would I willingly restrict myself from what makes me happy? Why would I willingly restrict myself from what makes, gives me pleasure, what's excite, what excites me, what, what gives me meaning and purpose, what, what is aligned with, again, with, with the um, identity that I've come up with, that I've forged, that I want to present to the world? And that's a fair point, again, because why would we? We all, we, we all are, when we're honest, we, we all come to that question thinking the same thing. Why would I do that? We like freedom. We like liberty, right? It's, it's part, of, part of our culture as well, that we, we consider it a right of, of our country that, to have freedom, to have liberty. But as we'll discover this morning, that what we think brings us happiness actually brings us into self-destructive uh, tendencies and behaviors and lifestyles. We need to come to the realization that God, who knows us better than ourselves, who created us to, to, to live and to be a certain way, has something far greater for us than just passing pleasures, than just momentary happiness. He wants us to experience lasting joy that comes from freedom from sin. And that's what the Spirit produces in us when He's producing in us self-control and the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-empowered self-control, then, is not what the world would see as, it's not oppression, it's actually liberation. It's quite the opposite. It's the freedom to be able to pursue lasting joy and fulfillment. And that, all, and that comes only through surrendering ourselves and pursuing Jesus Christ. 
So let's turn now to sin as being the enemy of self-control. I mentioned it briefly, but let's look a little bit further at what that means. As I mentioned before, the biblical understanding of self-control and the cultural understanding are at odds with one another. They're in two different areas. Um, and the reason why that is is sin, as we, just, as we just talked about. But biblical self-control is completely at odds with what our cultural understanding about self-control and self-discipline is. Because... It's at odds with what our wicked, sinful hearts tell us day in and day out. What we hear, what we see, what's whispered into our ears. And that's why it's so important that we continue to latch on to the gospel, that we continue to speak the gospel, encourage each other in the gospel each and every day, preach the gospel to ourselves and go to scriptures. Self-control by the, by the world's definition at best is restrict yourself for right now in order to get what you really want. It's really going to satisfy you later. Or restrict yourselves just for the moment because it's going to make you look really good in front of other people. And that's completely at odds with what Scripture teaches with self-control is, which is, I have been freed from self-centeredness of sin in order that I might liberally love God and liberally love others and serve and love God and other people. So you see the, the big difference between the two of those? You see what sin does? It, it, it cuts out God. It cuts out other people from the picture. And what it does is it, it does this natural, uh, unnatural rendering or, or pulling apart the, the elements of the fruit of the Spirit so that they are somehow disjointed, that they're not, they're not together. It, it, it separates it from the rest, from, it separates self-control from love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and, and, and it says that it's going to use this in isolation to the others. But as we've been talking about through the series, is that the fruit of the Spirit is a singular fruit, right? It's, it's like a cluster of grapes, or to use another illustration, it's like a puzzle with many different pieces. When you have all the puzzle pieces together, you get a single image that's very clear and, and, and understandable. When you separate, separate those out, or you have one missing, or eight of them missing, and you've got one left, you don't get a full picture. So they, they, they go together. So sin cuts them apart. Sin also takes love and care for people and throws it out the window as well. The worldly brand of self-control, then, is, is all about the self. It's all about maximizing my own fame, my own comfort, above everything else over God and other people. It's, it's idolatry. It's utter self-absorption. It's lifting myself up to the highest level of prominence. It's dethroning God, and it's enthroning myself instead in His place. And it's in doing so, I get to then give full vent to all of my passions and my desires and pleasures. Anything that, that I want to pursue, I can, because I am God. And the reformer Martin Luther had a really interesting phrase that he used to, that captured this idea of the self-centeredness of sin. I'm going to butcher it. It's, uh, it's, it's in Latin. I don't, know, I don't speak Latin. I don't know Latin. Never, never uh, really studied it. Um, but it's, he uses the word, uh, or the phrase, incurvitus in se, which means sin is man curved in upon himself. And what Luther's driving at is that we are such humpback creatures that we, we can't see beyond ourselves, that we're so focused on ourselves that we at the expense of seeing other people, at the expense of seeing God and what His will is, and at the expense of, uh, of caring, really, for anybody else besides ourselves, beyond our, nothing beyond our immediate desires and, and, and urges. So what that means is that I pursue what I want, when I want, in order to feel satisfied for this moment. And that could mean practicing the desires of, of the flesh, the fleshly uh, works of the flesh that, that Paul lists here in Galatians chapter 5 when he, when he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. I can go on and on and on. And notice also by this, uh, I want to point out too, it's important that what Paul lists here are, all ex- are not all external things that we all see either. Right? We, see, we see jealousy in this list and we see envy in this list. So, there's, so it also shows you that sin is much more than just what we see on the outside. It's in, internal as well. It's inward. Inward focus. But sin is much more, it's much more insidious than just the fact that I pursue these, these things that are, that are obviously wrong. It's also 
as a sinner, I'm seeing things that, that around me that, and saying that nothing is off limits, really, when it comes to fulfilling my desires and pursuing what I want to pursue. I'll, I'll use anything and anything at all to my disposal, at my disposal, to my own advantage, even the good things, even good things that, that are gifts from God. Pastor Lou pointed this out a couple weeks ago when he, when he told us, showed us how the, the word that Paul uses for desires in this passage also refers to inordinate over-desire, having a, an over-desire for things, over-indulgence. So we take things that are good that God has given us and we, and we make them into ultimate things. You've probably heard people use a phrase, all, this, this phrase I've heard a lot, which is everything in moderation, including moderation. Well, that's, that's pretty much at the heart of it, that, that we don't moderate ourselves, really. We use anything and everything we want. To get, what, to get out what we want. So we use things like food, we use things like sexual intimacy, we use things like relaxation and work and family and sports and recreation. We use technology, government, medical science, all these things which are good and they've been given to us by God, but we make them ultimate things and they become what we use. They become tools in order to pursue what I want to our own eternal detriment. And in so doing, we actually end up forfeiting our souls for momentary pleasures that we can have now. But you might, you might ask the question, Chris, what about, what about people, though, who aren't Christians, who show an, ex- an, a, an incredible amount of self-control, of self-discipline? You know, they're able to overcome addictions, alcoholism and, and substance abuse and, and, and pornography, all these other things. They were able to do it by their willpower, what do you say about say to those people? I'd say, congratulations, that's, that's awesome. I, I would say, I can learn a lot from you. I can learn a lot from that kind of self-discipline. That's something that we should applaud, we should encourage people. But it's, it, it's not enough. We, t- we need to go further and say that unless we're, we're getting to the root cause of the problem, which is sin, then we're only treating the symptoms of a greater disease. Right? We're, we're treating the symptoms and we're not treating the disease, which is sin itself. You see, sin is, the problem is that sin is so deceptive. We, we are so deceived by our desires and we're so deceived by what sin can give us and brings us that we think that we are being self-controlled when in reality we're still very much out of control. And that's what's so scary about sin. It, it blinds us effectively to our, our motivations, our intentions behind why we do things. Kind of reminds me of, of this uh, the series on AMC called Mad Men. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that show. Um, but it's, it, it follows this, the story of this guy named Don Draper, and he's a, a successful and suave uh, advertising executive in New York City back in the 1960s and 70s. It's a fictional story. <clears throat> but we see him pretty much over the course of nine seasons, and it's sometimes really hard to watch, him at unraveling. He comes, he just, he comes to, to the point where he's, his life is left in shambles. He starts to lose the respect of his co-workers. Um, he starts to uh, lose his family, strain his relationships, lose his friends, his job. So, and we see from the very first episode, really, the trajectory that he's taking in his life that's going to end up in his ruin. But one of the things that I noticed in the first episode, which I thought was really interesting, is that we find him... Um, He's in this point in his life where he's trying to come up with a new advertising campaign for Lucky Strike cigarettes. This is a time in, in history where everybody was smoking. And um, he's having a difficult time coming up with a new advertising campaign. And while he's, he's kind of preparing for this, his senior researcher comes in and starts telling him about the, the, uh, the results of the study that they have made, that they put together. And the study was trying to answer the question, why do people continue to smoke even after they know it's bad for them? Or even further, why do people take up smoking when they know that it's bad for them? And the answer that this researcher comes up with is that people have this innate death wish, that there's something within people that gets a thrill and excitement out of doing what is dangerous and what is self-destructive. And there's some truth to that. The instantaneous thrill that we get from pursuing sin and, and involving ourselves in, 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 in its desires is 
we, we think that there are no consequences. We deceive ourselves that there's no consequences to what I'm doing. Or that they're so far in the future that they don't matter. Or that when I get to them, they, they won't be that bad after all. And even when we do come to the, to the moment where we start to experience the consequences of these things, we, we will then take the opportunity to restrict ourselves. But it's only for a long enough time where we can find a suitable replacement. We find a safer, more culturally acceptable replacement for that addiction, for that sin, for that behavior. So without the need of the whole, without the, the aid of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, we, we may try to restrict ourselves in our, through our, uh, from our passion through, through willpower, but our effort is ultimately going to be futile because it can't save us from that enemy that's locked and anchored deep within our hearts, which is sin itself. At best, willpower can momentarily distract us from the consequences of sin but it can't heal us. So it's without, without the, the indwelling Holy Spirit producing con- self-control in us, in our hearts, then we remain defenseless and we're captive, captive to our old desires. We're captive to the new ones that, that are presenting themselves before us now in our life. Proverbs 28 has a good insight here that Solomon writes this, these words. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I think it was last, last summer we did a, a sermon series on the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. We talked about how they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, around the city, and how it was important to have a wall around a city because this city needed to be protected from outside forces. It was a way of protecting the city's inhabitants from, from all sorts of ruin that could happen. They were vulnerable to attacks and, and, and looting and those kind of things. So what Solomon's doing in this proverb is he's equating an unprotected city with a person that doesn't have self-control. And there's a, a commentator, Bruce Waltke. He does a great job giving you the heart of what Solomon's communicating here. This is what he says about Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight. He says, quote, The fool is characterized by lack of self-control. A breached city, which has no walls, is defenseless. The decisive char- characteristic of a city is its protective wall. If the enemy it raises or if it topples it to the ground, the city is left defenseless and open to all sorts of villainy. The topic, which is a person whose spirit has no restraint, paradoxically presents a person who has uncurbed psychic vitality within him like an attacking enemy from without. His unchecked animal drives plunder him like an attacking enemy. He goes on to say, the unbridled person is defeated before the contest. His salvation is to embrace the Lord and his wisdom immediately for his defense and for his victory. Wisdom, which is divine grace attained by faith, it's external from ourselves, not native power, fortifies the inner self and so safeguards its possessor. So I, I really especially like that last sentence that, he, that he, uh, he states. Wisdom, which is divine grace attained by faith, not native power, fortifies the inner self and so safeguards its possessor. I think and I believe that there's a, a direct link between self-control and wisdom, that they're almost like two sides of the same coin, right? When, and so when we ask, which is the, the next logical question, which is how does self-control get produced in my life? How, what does self-control look like? It's the same, the answer to that question is the same as if we were asking it about it's relating to wisdom. And the answer is we look to Scripture. And that's what I want to point out next is how Scripture is the pathway to self-control. First, we've got to take a moment just to, to talk about what, what wisdom is. Bible teaches that wisdom is pretty much skillful living. It's, it's using sound judgment in order to properly navigate through the pathway of life. So when we do that, we're, we're using wisdom, we're avoiding mishaps, we're, we're um, staying on course, 
right? And, and we're, we're staying, we're remaining balanced when we walk through some treacherous terrain that, that comes in the form of difficulties in life, struggles, and, 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 and all sorts of treachery. So spiritual wisdom is what keeps us within the boundaries of God's will. It safeguards us. It's, it's, it's knowing how to live in Christian liberty because we do have liberty in Christ. We have freedom, but it's without going to excess. It's actively doing what, what God has, has commanded us to do while also ne- neglecting or, or moving away from what he has forbid us to do. And that's, that's what self-control looks like. Looks just like, looks just like that. So practically speaking, when we talk about self-control, it looks like this. Self-control is, one, it's avoiding sin. It is, when I do sin, I'm repenting from my sin, turning away from my sin, confessing it. I'm meditating on Scripture. That's what self-control is. And it's also pursuing Jesus Christ. And it's lastly, it's humbling myself to the point where I see and I respond in love to the needs of other people. That's what self-control is. And when I'm doing that, then it's the Holy Spirit who's producing within me self-control and all the other nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit in order to help me to accomplish what my life's goal is, my end goal, my ultimate goal, which is to glorify God, right? It's to glorify my Savior, my Lord, my King. And that's my aim. That's, that's my aim as a child of God is to, is to glorify God. It's my greatest heartfelt desire. Paul talks about this in working through self-control by giving us an illustration of, a, of an athlete in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should also be disqualified. So Paul uses the illustration of a runner, uses the illustration of a boxer, uh, and their, their end goal is the same thing. They're, they're, they're training hard, they're exercising, they're bringing themselves under uh, what needs to happen in order to, for them to qualify for their particular sport. And Paul's saying the same thing as what we're doing spiritually. We're disciplining ourselves. We're making every effort to bring ourselves in alignment and in accordance with our new identity in Jesus Christ. And we do that knowing that we will have an eternal reward when Jesus returns for us. We will be with Him forever. That's our reward. We will be with Christ, the one who saved us and loved us and gave Himself for us, who purchased us by His blood. Psalm 16 says, In your presence... O Lord, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what our goal is. That's the reason why we we pursue self-discipline and self-control, because we know that we will receive reward. But until we receive that reward of being with Christ physically forever, we we have there's a lot of work in front of us, right? We still have obedience. We still have to humble ourselves to, in obedience to, to God and to His law. Paul doesn't shy away from using co- uh, commands or imperative language with the, with the Corinthians, especially in, in the very next chapter. I just use an example from the next chapter, from chapter 10. We just read from chapter 9. Chapter 10, he says, Do not be idolaters. He says, Flee from idolatry. He tells, he tells them to not indulge in their sexual immorality. He tells them not to grumble or complain. Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of other people. Jesus does the same thing. He gives us commands as well. And we could, we could look through lots of Scripture to see that, but just taking uh, Matthew chapter 5 alone, there's, there's lots, of, lots of them in there. I'm just going to answer, uh, give you a few here, which is, he says, Jesus says, do not hate your brother. He says, don't think lustful thoughts. He says, don't take vengeance or don't retaliate on those who have harmed you. He says, love your enemies. And you may be thinking then, I'm listing all these commands now, I thought you said we didn't need to obey commands in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, in order to be a child of God. And I'd, I'd say 100% that's true. We don't need to 
to abide by some set of laws in order to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's only through Him and what He has done for us. It's, it's a gift from God, right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2. But right after that, we also have to realize in, in verse 10 that Paul goes on to say, for we are His workmanship. That means we, are, we belong to God. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are, it's certainly true, we're not saved by our good works, by some moral uh, perfection or abiding by some standard. It's only through what Christ has done, through His works. But we were saved for the purpose of worshiping God through our good works. So good works performed through obedience to God is how we display the reality of, of our new life that's in Christ. We, we obey not to acquire or to attain favor or acceptable uh, acceptance from God. We don't, we don't obey in order to, uh, to acquire a new identity, but what we do is we obey because we have a new identity already in Christ because of what He's done for us, because we are now His sons and daughters. We are adopted children of God, and that's what a child of God does. That's what a child does, obeys his or her parents. So how do we know, then, what good works are? How do we know how we should then live? If we're told that we ought to live this way and it's our desire to do that, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we live in, in a way that pleases God? And the answer is through studying Scripture. We look at Scripture. We look at the Bible and see how God has revealed Himself to us, who He is, what His quali- qualities are, what, what His heart looks like. And it's important that we see that because we were made to reflect his image. How can we reflect him if we don't know him, if we don't see what he looks like? When we read the Bible, when we study it together, and I say together intentionally because it's something we don't just do privately, we, we also do it together in community. That when we, when we, we do it in a one by, one-on-one relationship through our conversations, through sending scripture, we do it in a community group, we do it in, in, the, in our family life, with husband and wife, with, with parents and children, with, with all other relationships in life. But when we do that, when we're studying the Bible together, when we're talking about it, reflecting on it, then, then we'll start to begin to love the scriptures. It gets buried deep within, within our hearts, within our minds. And then when, it, when it's wed with our, with our emotions, then we can live it out authentically. Not under compulsion, but authentically. And, you know, I realize we're not going to do it perfectly. It's, it's important to say that up front, is that we're not going to do it perfectly uh, from day to day. It's, it's a process. Remember, it's a process that's ongoing. There will be, but there will be progress. There will be change. Because God's working the change within you. The Holy Spirit's empowering us to do that. One of my, one of my favorite... Psalms is Psalm chapter 19 because we see David's heart here as he's talking about his love for God's law, the love for the scriptures. And we know that David was not a perfect man. He He had lots of problems in his life because of his sin, lots of consequences to his sin. But he knew that he needed God's grace daily. He needed to to continue to meditate on that daily. And he knew that when he needed to do that, which was every day, he needed to go to Scripture to do that. That's where he found it. This is what he writes in Psalm chapter 19. <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Does that passage, as as we were reading it, resonate with you? If you're a Christian, to some degree it should. We've all, as Christians, as believers, those who have been, have been purchased by Christ, have experienced to some degree the, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit through the hearing, the reading, and the meditating on Scripture. And that's because when we do that, 
we're uniting ourselves with Christ. We are in union with Christ when we are studying His Word. It's a pathway. Scripture is that pathway that leads us to Christ Himself, that leads us to, to God. And it's there that we're going to find wisdom. We're going to find self-control. We're going to find knowledge, understanding. We're going to know more about God, who He is, His nature, His power, His grace, and His, his compassion toward us. It's through studying the Scriptures that, that we're going to um, find that we can live out the implications of the Gospel in community with one another. That's what we find in Scripture. Remember earlier I said how the world's brand of self-control is only concerned with the self, not with other people. Well, when the Spirit empowers us with true self-control, we become concerned now with the needs of other people. We become concerned with the needs of the people that are within the church, within our, within our family, the church the church body. We care for one another's needs physically, uh, emotionally, you know, uh, uh, monetarily, spiritually, all these different ways. We do it together as a church, as a community. But we're also expressing that love and grace and mercy of God outside the walls of the church. And, and what I mean is that I don't mean that the church is a, is a building, but what I mean is the church goes out into the community and extends the love and grace and, and mercy of God and the, through the gospel to those that, that, we're, that we're living around, that, to those in our culture who have not heard, who have not come into the fold. And so what we do is we show these acts of, of kindness and, and mercy and compassion and express the gospel to all people. It doesn't matter what their background is. It's... it's, it's regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity or race, regardless of their religion, regardless of their sexual orientation or sexual identity, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their political affiliation, and regardless of their citizenship status, and we can go on and on and on. And the reason that we do that is because we see, that's what we see Jesus doing. We, we know that self-control is a spirit-led wisdom and obedience to God's command because that's what we see Jesus doing. That's what we see him doing. He was radically other-focused. He is the only one who perfectly and eternally exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, including the attribute of self-control. From the moment that he stepped down on earth, when he came to earth, he, was, he surrendered himself to the Father's will. He was led by the Spirit in all acts of life, all manner of life, through his, through his ministry while he was here on, on earth. And in so doing, he fulfilled the law. In Luke chapter 4, we see... Uh, an illustration of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert, being led there and where he fasted for 40 days, and he withstood during that time the aggressive temptation at Satan, at Satan's hand. And although Satan appealed to Jesus' senses, he appealed to his hunger, Jesus didn't give in for a moment. Instead, he, he, com- he combated Satan's temptation, combated Satan himself through Scripture. And do- in so doing, he, he left for us an example as to how we should also live, especially when it comes to temptations. But more than that, even before he, he can become our, our example, and he is our example as believers, but before that, he was, he's first our Savior. He's first the one who, who's purchased our freedom from sin, from f- freedom from Satan, from hell. He secured our eternal destinies, and, and in so doing that, we, he, he humbled himself before God as he went to the cross. And that's crazy self-control, right? That's, that's, that's radical othersness. God himself came and he suffered the agony of sin and its consequences, the, including the wrath of God himself. He, he, he went through the torment of hell on the cross and he came out the other side victorious. And he did that for the glory of God the Father and he did that for our benefit as well. And so I would ask the question this morning, if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ, would you turn to him this morning? Would you, would you stop living by your own standards? Whatever brand of self-control it is that you've, you've locked on into, it's a worthless investment of time. Ultimately, it's, it's worthless. It's not going to pay off. It, it might feel good for now. It might work. It might make people look at you and like you. But it's, it's, it's not going to make any difference in eternity. So I would, I would plead with you to, to repent of your sins this morning. Trust in Jesus Christ. He's the one who loves you and he died for you so you didn't have to suffer the consequences of sin 
You can be free from the burden of sin, but you can also be freed from the burden of daily self-promotion, trying to put on a good face and promote yourself day in and day out. If you are a Christian, I would say, are you involved in, in gospel-centered community? We can live out the implications of the gospel. Are, are you involved in community? Are, it begins in, your, in, your, in yourself and in your home, but it also goes out, out from there, balloons out from there. It's not, it's not a private endeavor, right? And that's why I would, I would, the next question I would ask you is, are you loving the lost, right? Your faith might be personal, and it is personal to each of us, but it's not private. It's not meant to be hidden and kept private. We're, 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 we have been brought in to participate in the great mission of God, which is to go and to care about other people, to love them, care for their needs, and show them that the eternal destiny is at stake, looking for ways to, to demonstrate, to declare the gospel to them in love. And the last thing I, I want to I ask this morning is, do you soak up Scripture regularly? Are you, are you finding truth in God's Word as it is revealed in Scripture, or are you looking for truth in other ways, in other places? Do you love the Scriptures? Right? Are you remembering that, that the Scriptures are the vehicle in knowing Christ and loving others? So I would say read the Scriptures, meditate on the Scriptures, pray the Scriptures together, foster a, a gospel-centered home and a household, and rest in the Gospel, I'd say. Last, I would say, rest in the Gospel. And in and, and so doing, you, you will then experience how the Holy Spirit is producing in us internal gospel growth in the nature of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your great mercy and grace. We thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, not keeping the, the gospel a mystery from us, but teaching us who you are, revealing to us who you are in new ways the more ways that we understand the facets of Scripture, we understand you fuller, more complete. We see through a glass darkly and, and dimly, Lord, but I pray that we would see even more clearly today after today, after you've resonated the gospel in our hearts, show us the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray that it would inform us in how we should live our lives, how we should love each other. We thank you for the new identity that we have together as children of God, that we're not isolated children, but we are brought in together as a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ that we, we ought to love and encourage and, 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 and take care of each other's needs. I pray also that we would remember that our mission is to go out also and to share the good news of the gospel. So Lord, continue to work in our hearts your redemptive will and we, we look forward to the day when you will return but in the meantime we pray that you would give us self-control, that you would help us to uh, exercise obedience and that in so doing we'd find great joy and that we would give you all the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.